Mercifully, everything comes to an end, and today I'm concluding my series on the deadly sins. I now call this series the Deadly Sin Series because I've gone well beyond the traditional seven deadly sins. This sermon, the last sermon, is on superstition. Superstition. And this is the 11th sermon in the series. In one sense, the Bible says very little about superstition. The Greek word that is translated superstition appears in Acts 25, 19, and a cognate of that word appears in our text. And uh, most of the time it is translated as religion or very religious. It can be translated a couple of other ways, and one way is superstition. The context always determines how the word is translated. It appears, of course, most of the time in other writings outside of the New Testament. Now, the translator, of course, renders it according to the context. And today, though, in the text, which is the text for this sermon in Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16, the word can be translated as very religious or superstitious. And I see that the NIV translators have translated it as very religious. Now, we do, though, have many, many examples of superstition in the New Testament and in the Old. For example, when King Saul consulted with the witch at Endor, he had turned away from God and he had turned to his own darkened heart and he went to the witch at Endor to consult her. And you know those passages in the Old Testament from the prophets where the prophets spoke of idolatry. And in one sense, all idolatry is superstition. If you read that magnificent passage in Isaiah chapters 40 through 50, you get the greatest indictment in all of the Bible of idolatry and how it leads to darkness. In my text, Acts 17, we see where Paul the Apostle encountered the pagan world uh, and in encountering the pagan world in this context, he does so in its most learned city, the city of Athens, the city of philosophers, the city, if you will, of freedom. Uh, first uh, uh, democracies were established in the city of Athens. It was a city that Paul describes as very religious. That is our word, very religious. He could also equally mean superstitious. And so he describes them in that way. And so today I want you to see and understand that superstition is what it is and what it is not. Sometimes we have to understand what something is not in order to understand what it is. I also want you to understand that the remedy for superstition is really a very simple answer as far as Christians are concerned. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul may have been on holiday here. At least he had a little time to himself. He had been driven out of a couple of other places and his colleagues remained behind because they were not being prosecuted, if you will, by the authorities. And so Paul went on to Athens to wait for them and he had some time on his hand, leisure time. 
And Paul walked around through the city. Now, the city was not huge by our standards by any stretch of the imagination. It's nothing like what Athens, Greece is today. It is a huge metropolitan area of many millions of people. But then it would have been between five and 10,000 people. But its fame uh, was in the past. And it was the city of philosophers. In fact, this passage has some elements. It's quite, quite clear that Luke uh, wants us to know that Paul comes, in some sense, as a philosopher as well as a prophet, as a philosopher in the spirit of Socrates, to once again bring the people back to reason and reality. And in this case, to bring them back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me talk about what superstition is. Uh, it is obvious that uh, superstition uh, includes idolatry as far as the Christian world is concerned. It includes uh, movements like the New Age movement, the consorting of uh, consultation with witches or other kinds of New Age things. And so we can dismiss that as superstition, and we have and we do. But superstition also, in the, in the Enlightenment period, about 200 years ago, many of our elites in the Western world began to see all religion as superstition. Every, everybody who has a religious belief system is a superstitious person. Well, I will deal with that too in the course of this sermon. But superstition, uh, surely from the biblical perspective, includes then idolatry and cultic practices. Superstition can be crass and it can be less crass. Now, I want to give uh, you uh, an understanding of superstition, too, that includes fear. It is interesting here that the word fear is used here. As a matter of fact, the word superstition can be translated in another way as an excessive fear of the gods. And so King Saul, for instance, turned to the witch of Endor. Why? He was afraid. He saw his enemy, the Philistines, and he saw their might and their power and he became afraid. He was unable at that point to trust in God. And he turned to fear and eventually he turned to superstition. But I think we need what we need here is a kind of definition of superstition before I go any further. And let me give you one. It happens to be the fifth point in my dictionary at home. I think it's Random House. And the fifth meaning of superstition is this. Any blindly accepted belief or notion. And let me elaborate on that for a moment. Any blindly accepted belief or notion that, if you will, rejects reason and rejects knowledge. In other words, superstition is not based on reason and it's not based on knowledge. It's irrational by definition. Let me go further here, though, and say that reason is not the only source of knowledge. So is faith. Trust. A child that trusts its parents is going to get knowledge. The first way we get knowledge in life that the stove is hot, maybe, besides experiencing it, is for a mother to say, don't touch the stove, it is hot. We trust our mother, so we don't touch the stove. We heard music. 
here today. If one is to play the cello, one must submit oneself, if you will, to authority and trust that authority to learn. Uh, that way you can get beyond twinkle, twinkle, little star. You have to submit yourself to someone and trust them. Faith is an avenue of knowledge. St. Augustine said, I believe in order that I might understand. And so one can gain knowledge through faith as well as reason. When you go to the doctor, you, you trust the expertise of the doctor. In the same way in church, in some ways, all of you are trusting today, at least uh, I hope all of you are trusting the church and the message uh, that the church preaches in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. But the church represents a certain kind of authority. It has the right to proclaim and minister in the name of Christ, as well as individual Christians. But to get back to our definition, superstition by nature is mistrusting and it is unreasonable. And in a sense, if we mistrust those things that we should trust, we always begin to trust those things that we should not trust. And so superstition, in some sense, is a step back or away from reality, the way things really are. In every case, superstition is walking back from reality. And if that definition in mind, let us look at how this happens. There is a kind of mindset that is willing to believe almost anything, but just to cover their basis. This is a gullible kind of personality, and a gullible kind of personality, of course, is very susceptible to being swindled, among other things. Very susceptible to cults. A gullible person, in some sense, is vulnerable throughout life. It, it's, it's, it's a curse in one sense to be, be a gullible person, not to be on your guard, not to be wary, because you will be taken advantage of in this world. But superstition often takes the route, if the road to superstition is a person who believes, easy believer, almost in anything and everything. Some of Paul's hearers, as he was speaking, speaking to them from the Areopagus, when he, when he spoke to them, many of them were very superstitious in this sense. As a matter of fact, it seems most of the city of Athens was superstitious in this sense. They were covering all of their bases. All the gods, in some ways, represented something that they were afraid to leave out. And they even erected a god to the unknown god, just in case they didn't cover all their bases. And there are mindsets like that. Lots of people are gullible. And I would say the normal state for most of us, in some sense, and we have to be trained not to be, is to take people at their word. Now, that's kind of a shame, isn't it, that we can't do that. But in a fallen world, that's the case. That's why we're so subject to political propaganda. That's why we're so subject to many things in life, to sales pitches. Because we're gullible. And this attitude can manifest itself in following superstitious ways in life, to your own hurt and your own harm, and to those around you. There were those in Athens like that. But there's another kind of road to superstition, if I can say it, and it has to do 
with the philosophers, in this case, the Epicureans. Let me talk about the Epicureans here. They're mentioned and the Stoics. I, I didn't include the Stoics. I could, but I don't have a lot of time. The Epicureans, interesting, interesting uh, philosophy. Epicurus was, lived a life practically as a monk. That might shock a lot of people because the word Epicurean means uh, in philosophy to be licentious, to seek uh, pleasure. That's the end goal of life. So let me just encapsulate briefly what Paul encountered at Mars Hill, the Epicureans. The Epicureans had a philosophy that everything was made out of little particles. Everything, material particles, and picture them falling down right like rain and they swerve into each other and create things like worlds, people, horses, cats, dogs, table. And it's just by chance. And so when Epicurus adopted this philosophy, he also said the gods themselves, and there were gods, but they are indifferent, but they too are material, created by chance. It's just part of reality. But he reduced all of reality to the material world. And since that's all there is, he says it makes sense then that while you're in existence, and you will go out of existence, while you're in existence, you should maximize your pleasure and minimize your pains. That's the whole goal of life. It's based on a material worldview. You see, there is no God who judges. There is no God who created and made all things. Everything is by chance. The material world is it. There's nothing beyond you when you die. That's it. You just go out of existence. Therefore, it makes sense to maximize your pleasures and to minimize your pains. Now, he ended up to minimize his pains and to maximize his pleasures living a life that was almost like a monk because too many pleasures cause pains. And sometimes you have to suffer some pain so that you don't um, suffer a worse pain. And so that was his philosophy of life. Let me say that a lot in the modern world are Epicureans, aren't they? Many of our leading figures in our societies who have tremendous cultural control over our lives are thoroughgoing materialists. There is nothing beyond this life. There is no such thing as a soul that is eternal. We are left to ourselves to make it up. And we are to maximize our pleasures and minimize our pains. What have we done when we reduce the world simply to the material aspect of it? We've denied the whole reality of the spiritual. And if we are reductionist in this sense of the word, what do we do? We then are left to our own resources. What we do is enter into our own darkened hearts and then that's all the light we get. And that's why we are often in the mess that we are in. To follow our own lights is to follow our own darkened hearts. And in the modern world, there are too many leading in high places with a view such as this. And it creates a life that reminds me very much of a passage in Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to read it. 
In Matthew chapter 12, there's this interesting account of a man. And in verse 43, uh, this man, and, and just let me read the text, is this, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, now just think if you reduce everything to the material, you drive out that which in this case is an evil spirit, but you drive out and become empty. What happens? It goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and enters into the man. What we've created in our modern world with materialistic understanding is a vacuum that is being filled by all kinds of superstition. So you can be a superstition by believing too much and by believing too little. It leads you to the wrong place. Now, Paul was quite aware of these things. It is amazing of his awareness of these things. And he stands before those at the Areopagus and he begins to introduce them to this God that they do not know. Now, I chose the text to shorten the reading, but the text continues. And Paul believes that the answer is not to be a reductionist and not to be an easy believer in everything but is to come to understand reality the way it is. It is both material and spiritual. We are a material body. We have a spiritual soul. Life is more than just the material. There is God who reigns on high. And look how he does it. He begins to preach to them and he says, there is one God who controls all things and all human beings and all lives are finite and dependent upon that God. He has created the heavens and the earth. Here he's striking a blow, and I'll just mention it briefly, against the Stoics. The Stoic philosophers believed that everything was God. It's called pantheism, a type of pantheism. Everything is God. Paul immediately tailors his message to say, no, 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 no. There is everything else, and then there is God who has created all things. And we have separated ourselves from this God through our superstitions and our sins. But make no mistake, it is God who gives life and breath to everything and everyone. He has made all nations from one blood. Go on and read his preaching sermon there. It is this God that in whom we live and move and have our being and who will judge us at the end of history. This great reality, this deep reality, deeper than we can imagine. Another philosopher, Heraclitus, left some fragments. He lived several centuries before the Apostle Paul. And one of those little fragments, and I've read them all, 128 of them, I think. And one fragment says, and no context, it says this. Nature or reality loves to hide itself. Nature or reality loves to hide itself. What 
what Heraclitus was realizing is that reality is really difficult to get at. Why is that? Because our minds and our hearts are not what they should be. Notice that when we use our cyclotrons to continue to break down atomic particles, we are at a place now where these particles have no mass. And they can appear in two places at one time. CERN in Switzerland just announced, what? That they believe they have discovered the God particle, the boson. Hyksos boson, the God particle. Think of that. Well, of course, we know that it's just continued to go deeper and deeper into the mystery. But we are shading into the spiritual, aren't we? When you talk about things that can appear two places at one time with no mass. Think of what happens in our human realm about our life and the quality of life that we have if we rely on our own sources. We go into our heart and try to establish what is right and what is wrong, and what do we do? We're so messed up today in our judgments that we cannot recognize and name terrorism as terrorism. We cannot actually say that some behaviors are right and some things are wrong. It gets very confusing to the children in school, I am sure. I just printed an article from France. Let me tell you what happens when you abandon God. It is true, the old Saul, you begin to believe in everything. In France, they've decided now, the socialist government is proposing that we no longer label mothers, mothers, and fathers, fathers on the birth certificate. They now have proposed that we label them parent one and parent two. Now let me read just a couple of paragraphs. If France's new socialist government has its ways, mothers and fathers will cease to exist in legal papers. That is, legislation that would legalize same-sex marriage and give homosexual couples the right to adopt children also would replace the term mother and father with parent one and parent two in all legal documents, including birth certificates. Friends, this is superstition. It's against reality. It's insane. Why? Because we have nothing to rely upon but our own darkened hearts. And so what does Paul do? He concludes his sermon on Mars Hill by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. This God that you seek, in fact, has come to you from another world and made his revelation plain in the person of Jesus Christ. And he died for your sins on the cross and he was raised the third day that you might truly enter into deepest reality that you cannot get there through these superstitious ways. This is a magnificent philosophical sermon Paul preaches. He demonstrates his training and his understanding in a way that the other apostles could never have done in this case. He comes as a prophet to Athens to show them out of the way of being gullible and reducing everything to material existence. You know, I want to close today with talking about the cross. 
Paul preached the cross and he preached the resurrection. We're going to go outside, and I hope all of you will go. It'll be brief outside, but we want to read this litany concerning the cross. But it isn't interesting that God reveals himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that he reveals himself through a person who suffered on a cross? But he has now been raised. We live at a time and place in history where the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ needs to be preached with more power than ever before. Just as Paul broke through through the superstition for some of these people, you know, he got two converts out of this. Many of them rejected him. But we need to preach the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final sermon, as I said, on the deadly sin. Superstition is a deadly sin because it leads you away from reality into destruction. It may be a crass form of superstition. It may be a very sophisticated form as it took its form in the Epicureans. But it nonetheless leads to the same place. There's only one road that leads to deepest reality. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, let your hearts grab that truth. And you will see in a different way. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen.